um, our second reading is from Matthew 25, and it's verses 1 to 13. The parable of the ten virgins. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps, but did not take any oil with them. The wise, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, the cry rang out, Here's the bridegroom! Come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, Give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. No, they replied. There may not be enough for both us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later, the others also came. Sir, sir, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, I tell you the truth. I don't know you. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. This is the word of the Lord. Let's start with a prayer. Lord, this is a difficult and challenging passage and we place it in your hands. I pray you would speak through me this morning. We pray for ears to hear and we pray for great grace as we ponder this parable. Amen. Good morning, everybody. So I'm going to talk about the parable of the ten virgins. And it's a parable that sits in a wider context of end-time warnings and stories told by Jesus and recorded in Matthew chapter 24 and chapter 25. It's a parable about the future church. It's a parable about us. In the parable, there are ten virgins who go to meet the bridegroom, The bridegroom's delayed, they get sleepy, but a voice cries out, here comes the bridegroom. The wise virgins jump up and they're ready with oil in their lamps, but the foolish virgins are out of oil. The wise virgins won't lend them any of their oil, so the foolish virgins rush off to buy some more. Unfortunately, they were too late. The door to the wedding banquet is shut, and Jesus says to them, I don't know you. It's a pretty sobering story. With a clear overall message, we are to be ready for the return of Jesus and have oil in our lamps. Oil has always been seen as a symbol of the Holy Spirit, and the virgins were on their way with that oil to meet Jesus, the bridegroom. 
So having oil in our lamps represents intimacy with Jesus, our bridegroom, through the oil of the Holy Spirit. It's the oil of devotion. It's spirit-led devotion. The wise virgins had oil in their lamps because they knew Jesus and he knew them intimately. They were devoted to him. They had oil to bring him. I believe that all ten virgins in this parable are believers, both the wise and the foolish. That's why they're all virgins. They're all innocent. They're washed white as snow. They're saved. They all understand that the bridegroom is coming. They all went out to meet him. They'd all been invited to the wedding banquet. They'd all been called. They'd all started the journey. The foolish virgins even had oil and light in their lamps before it later went out. The foolish virgins are believers, not the unsaved, but over time they failed to cultivate that personal intimacy with Jesus through the Holy Spirit. They didn't really know the Lord. They didn't stay connected to him. They didn't live for him. They had no oil in their lamps. He may have been their savior, but he wasn't their bridegroom. And over the course of their journey, their lamps had gone out and become like religious shells with no light or life in them. Outward form remained, but inward reality had faded. The foolish virgins realized their predicament at the very last moment. They realized the bankruptcy of their condition, so they panicked and tried to borrow oil off the wise, but the wise virgins refused them. It was always a forlorn hope because you can't get oil from another. You can't appropriate someone else's spiritual history with God. You can't beg, steal, or borrow someone else's oil. You can't borrow someone else's prayer life. You can't ride off another person's relationship with Jesus. It doesn't matter how many books we've read or services we attend or how correct we think our doctrine is. We can never take another person's oil. We need personal time spent with Jesus. Only you can get to know Jesus for you. You have to get your own oil. Otherwise, you risk hearing those words from the bridegroom in the parable. Truly, I tell you, I don't know you, and the door to the wedding banquet will be closed. If we don't have oil in our lamps, if we're not ready for the return of Jesus, there are sobering consequences. When Jesus comes, the reality of where each of us stand with him will be brought into the light. It's going to be a terrible thing at the end of the age if we are forced to face the bankruptcy of our own spiritual condition. For many, the door will be closed. And however we seek to interpret the theological consequences of that, it's clearly not a good thing to be on the wrong side of that door. The foolish virgins did and will suffer great loss. Temporal foolishness will lead to eschatological loss, and it will be a desperate place to be. It won't be where any of us want to be. We may still experience him as savior at the end of the age, but will we all experience him as bridegroom? Will we all receive the fullness of our reward. Perhaps the closed door will stay shut for eternity or perhaps it will be a delay 
Who knows? Who wants to take that kind of risk? In ancient Jewish weddings, there would be seven nights of feasting to celebrate a wedding. The first night would be for very close friends and family. The next night, the circle would widen. More people would be invited. And the night after that, the circle would continue to widen. So perhaps there will be another chance for the foolish virgins. I don't know exactly how it will work out for them. But for those who are not ready when Jesus returns, there will be loss and there will be great regret. And however it plays out, none of us will have any grounds for complaint because if we don't want Jesus as the bridegroom now, we can't complain if we don't receive him as the bridegroom in the life to come. This isn't a forced marriage. Jesus told this parable because he has a heart for his bride and he loves us all so much. He doesn't want us to miss out on the fullness of the feast to come. He wants us to be ready, so we must get oil in our lamps. We can have everything else on this earth, but if we don't have that oil with Jesus, we've made a big mistake. The wise cultivate oil. The wise take time to encounter the bridegroom before his return. Jesus longs for his bride's heart. He's looking for that oil of intimacy. He's looking for believers who will freely enter into the God-ordained process to obtain oil. He wants a bride who will pay the price for her own oil, who will learn how to draw oil from the rock. As Jesus said to the lukewarm church in Laodicea, go buy gold refined in the fire. In other words, make a costly investment in me. Pay the price to draw close to me no matter what. Live for me alone, have eyes for me alone, desire me alone, and encounter me as bridegroom. Don't give up your wedding invite for the things of this world, for the things of the flesh. Don't give up your inheritance like Esau for a mess of pottage. Choose the bridegroom above all. This parable assumes a knowledge of ancient Jewish wedding customs. In Jewish culture at the time, the bridegroom would pay the bride's father a bride price. He would pay what he thought she was worth, and it would be a significant sum, perhaps one that had been saved up since his birth. But no matter what the sum, nobody has ever paid a greater bride price than Jesus. When the Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthians that we were bought at a price, he was using bridal language, and the price was Jesus' own blood. As the Apostle Peter wrote, it was not with perishable things, such as silver and gold, that you were redeemed, but with the precious blood of Christ. We know that the Lamb was slain before the foundation of the world, and yes, he was our sin offering it was also the bride price that Jesus was willing to pay for us. It was a costly price. There is no, or there was no higher price that heaven could offer for our hand in marriage. In ancient Jewish weddings, once the bride price had been paid and the terms of the marriage agreed upon, then the father, the bride, and the bridegroom would celebrate and they would drink from 
one cup called the cup of celebration. And from that moment on, both bride and bridegroom were betrothed. It's similar to a modern engagement, but, but much stronger, more binding commitment. You'd actually need a divorce to come out of your betrothal. And after the betrothal had been entered into, the uh, bridegroom would return to his father's house, the bride would return to her father's house, and they would be separated for several months. And the bridegroom would say to his bride when he left her, I go to prepare a place for you. I will come again and receive you to myself that you may be where I am also. That was the traditional wording used by the bridegroom to the bride, wording closely echoed by Jesus as he left the disciples to ascend to heaven to his father, promising to prepare a place for them there. The the disciples would have understood this as the language of betrothal. And during this period of time, the the bridegroom would prepare a place for his bride by building a room or a chamber onto his father's house. Jesus said in John 14, 2, my father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? Again, this is bridal language. And during this season of separation, the son would be thinking about his bride and how he could please her. His heart would be fixed upon her, filled with hope and anticipation for what was coming. And Jesus' heart is fixed upon us, his bride, as he prepares a place for us. The bride would also be preparing herself for the coming wedding. She'd be taught by the older women in the community about how to be a good wife. She would prepare her clothes. She would choose her bridesmaids. She had to be ready. Her bridesmaids and attendants would stay over in her chamber to help her. Their lamps would be ready with fresh oil in jars, her dress ready to put on. And while she waits, her love for the bridegroom and her expectation of what was coming would deeply intensify. She is betrothed and cannot have eyes for anything or anyone else. She has to stay alert because she's never told when the bridegroom will return. She doesn't know the day or the hour of the bridegroom's return. And if the bride was not ready when the bridegroom returned, then in that culture that was grounds for annulment of the betrothal. Thankfully, she had help to get ready, and we are also helped to get ready by the Holy Spirit. So according to the customs of the time, there was no set date for the wedding. No one knew when the wedding was going to be. Only one person knew when the bridegroom would fetch his bride, and that was the father of the bridegroom. The father would not allow the son to go and fetch his bride until the father was convinced, satisfied, that everything was fully prepared. The same, of course, will be true at the end of the age. Jesus said, of that day and hour, no one knows, not the angels or even the son, but the father alone. This is bridal language. When the father eventually tells his son it's time to get his bride, the son would quickly put on his wedding garments and the bridegroom and his company would head towards the bride's village almost always at night. And as Paul wrote in Thessalonians, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. The best man would run ahead and blow a shofar to warn the bride 
that the bridegroom was almost at her door, and this was called, according to tradition, the last trumpet. Then the best man would shout, Behold the bridegroom, just as in this parable. And the bride and her attendants would rush to get ready. Their lamps would be prepared with fresh oil, and the entire village would rush out to meet the bridegroom. When he arrived, he would sweep up his bride and take her back in procession to her father's house for the wedding and the wedding supper. It was a time of great celebration and joy. The day they'd been looking forward to with such anticipation. And we are to look forward to that day with our bridegroom, Jesus. Could there be any higher honor than being the bride of Christ. The church has always believed we're the bride of Christ right throughout history. It's not always emphasized it, apart from in some fairly obscure corners of medieval Catholic mysticism. The evangelical church is very strong at seeing Jesus as savior. We're also strong at seeing Jesus as friend. But let's not friend zone Jesus. We have a higher calling than that. We're called to be his bride. It was always the father's plan for his son to have a bride. We're called to romance, not religion. John the Baptist saw this bridal paradigm ahead of time and he announced what was coming. When his disciples started leaving him and following Jesus, John said the bride belongs to the bridegroom. Jesus referred to himself as bridegroom when asked by the Pharisees why his disciples weren't fasting. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, I have betrothed you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. And of course, in that famous passage in Ephesians 5, Paul compared earthly marriage to our heavenly marriage to Christ. At the end of the age, we read of the new Jerusalem coming down adorned like a bride, and an angel tells John, come, I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. Jesus isn't coming back for servants. He's not coming back for friends, as honorable as those things are. He's coming back for his bride. And until the church gets a corporate revelation of who she is as bride and who Jesus is as bridegroom, then I don't think the Lord will come back because the Father is looking for mature devotion. He's waiting for us to become the bride. He won't send his son until the bride is ready. We see this in Revelation 19 verse seven when addressing the second coming, it says, for the wedding of the lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. Jesus will come when the bride has made herself ready. Our primary responsibility, therefore, in this life is to steward our hearts to make sure they are completely given to Jesus, our bridegroom, to get that oil of intimacy, to be ready for his return. I want to finish with just one example of what that might look like in the coming season. And it's the story of Mary of Bethany. She modeled devotion to Jesus so well. 
in John 12, as well as in passages in in the other Gospels, we read that Mary was at dinner with Jesus. Others were there, including all the disciples. It was a big, open, public dinner. And Mary comes before Jesus, and she breaks open an alabaster jar of pure nard, which is perfume, and pours it on the feet of Jesus, wiping his feet with her hair. It was an act of extreme devotion, of lavish love, costly love. I read that a, j- a jar of pure nard cost the equivalent of a common worker's annual income. It was a 20,000 pound bottle of perfume and she pours all of it onto the feet of Jesus because he is all to her. He had all of her love. And as she smeared the feet of Jesus with her hair, the whole house was filled with a heavenly fragrance. She turned a common house into a garden of spices with her beloved. And the fragrance of that perfume got in her hair. It got all over her. She was covered in the oil of her devotion. And she became a sweet-smelling aroma to the Lord. Mary's lamp was overflowing with the richest of fragrant oils. We're meant to be marked by the perfume of our devotion. We're called to break open the alabaster jar of our own hearts and let our love for him pour out. And the more we pour out our love, the more he will fill us anew. The more we pour out in devotion, the more our jars will be continually refilled by God. And that is when the oil starts to increase. That is when the fragrance starts to rise. That is when our lamps start to shine. And we start to fall more in love with the bridegroom when our eyes are fixed on him, not on the things of this world. It will be impossible for us to miss him. We must have no other lovers. All of our hearts must be given to our bridegroom. This kind of extreme devotion can be offensive. Judas was cross with her. In fact, all the disciples were cross with her. Even John, the beloved disciple, was offended. She had offended all of them and exposed their lack of love, their lack of devotion. Judas wanted control over that money. He wanted a profit off the anointing. He thought the money had been wasted. Jesus later calls Judas a son of perdition. This literally means a son of waste. Judas thought Mary had wasted the money, but actually Judas wasted the life he'd been given. Mary didn't waste anything when she poured out the perfume of her devotion over Jesus. Nothing given in love is ever wasted. Our devotion to the bridegroom is never a waste. The time we spend with him in prayer is never a waste. The only waste in this life is not wasting ourselves. On Jesus. And this is why Jesus said of Mary of Bethany, she will always be remembered. Intimacy with the bridegroom is always costly. Sometimes it will offend others. But don't be afraid to be seen as a fool or to be madly in love with Jesus. Mary wasn't concerned with the judgments of others. She wasn't held back by thoughts of respectability or reputation. She only thought of the one before her. Respectability and reputation war against full-blooded 
bridal devotion. There wasn't a person in the room who wasn't offended with Mary other than Jesus. You can't have radical devotion without respectability and reputation being put under the knife in your personal life. True love cares not what others think. As Madame Guyon wrote, true love has no eyes for self. We're called to let go of ourselves and think only of the one we love, longing in our hearts for his return. This is how we start to position ourselves for the return of Jesus. So are we ready to go there? Are we ready for our marriage to Jesus? If he came now, are we ready? Are we shining for him? Is there a fragrance upon our life? Do we reek of that perfume of devotion? Are our lamps full of oil? Because we won't see him coming if our lamps are not lit. Let's not receive Jesus just as savior. Let's receive him as our bridegroom and let the spirit and the bride say come.